You would be right in saying that because there's a very experienced geologist who's recently put out a book on the geology of Tasmania and he says the same thing, that there's nowhere else like the geology here in the Queenstown area. So it is extraordinary and if you're interested in geology, there's no better place to be than the west coast of Tasmania. And if you talk to West Coasters, they remember that childhood. They will say, we were told to get out of the house and just come back at tea time. Yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that, but uh, the, oh, the, the West Coast. I'm Emily Kyle and this is Local. This is a conversation recorded with Queenstown landscape painter Chris Wilson. This episode was recorded in September over tea in my home. I would like to start at the beginning. You were born in Burnie? Yes, I was. And how long were you in Burnie for? I did all my early education there. So when I'd finished um, year 12, that's when I moved and I moved to Launceston. Oh, really? And how long were you in Launceston? I was there to get my teacher uh, training. So it was three years for a diploma of teaching and I specialised in early childhood education. And is that where you studied art and geology as well? Uh, yes, it was. They had this um, way of working the course that you did your education subjects and then you were allowed two majors of your own choice. And they didn't have to be related to your teaching course. So I picked my interests at the time, which was geology and art. So I was learning to be a kindergarten teacher and also um, studying art and geology. And what, was, um, what prompted you to study art and geology? Uh, because when I was about eight, I knew I had a, a love for drawing and painting and that continued right through from an eight-year-old child so it was a, a no-brainer and geology I guess I have to acknowledge my father's input there because he was a bit of a, a rock hound mm. um, not very serious but he would do some gold panning um, and he would bring back crystals and minerals from some of his camping expeditions so that was probably the start of it and also it was a subject that I did well in in year 11 and 12 so went on from there. Well, I didn't know that you could study geology in year 11 and 12. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. is that something that is particularly Tasmanian or? Look I don't know. Um, I did geology and geography because the two go hand in hand and the teacher we had for geology was a bit of a legend and I do believe he came from Queenstown. He was a giant of a man and um, I, I suppose you'd call him a bit of a nerd mm. but he was passionate about his subject and he took us on a few um, expeditions, if you like, out into the field and field geology is a whole lot 
different to studying the textbooks in the classroom. Mm. So once I'd done some field trips and got a, a bit of an idea what, you know, the real-world geology was, it was even more interesting. Yeah. Did your father ever take you on his camping expeditions? No, he didn't oh. because he liked to go on his own. He was a bit of a loner. Um, he didn't socialise very well and he would go off camping on his own. That mm. was his... Um, break away from a wife and children. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your mother like? Oh, she was a very hard-working um, secretary slash wife slash mother. Um, she kept us all fed and washed and all the right things. But they're both gone now. But I have to say, looking back on my childhood, knowing what other people's childhoods were like and what my own children's childhood would, was like, I do think that my parents were more interested in themselves than mm. their children. I always remember my parents displaying affection for one another quite openly, <laughs> but my sister and brother and I we were kind of left to do our own thing and kisses and cuddles and bedtime stories were not a part of our upbringing. Mm. We were basically just fending for ourselves as far as, you know, as long as we were given meals and washed at bedtime, the rest of the time we just did our own thing. And I know that sounds harsh but it actually probably started to shape me back then because I was given freedom to be independent and just head off and not tell anyone where <laughs> I was going and explore and, and do things without the knowledge of my parents and they didn't seem to care. So, <laughs> so my independence and affinity with just going bush by myself started very early and I guess they didn't intend to shape me that way but that's what happened. <laughs> what, how did it uh, affect your relationship with your brother and sister? Um, I was much closer to my brother because my sister was more a feminine girl and I was a bit more of a tomboy so I went with my brother on these little expeditions and we made cubbies in the bush and explored and, you know, did all those sort of outdoor boyish type things. Mm. So I was closer to my brother, yeah. Where would you go, your brother and, and yourself? Oh, we wouldn't have a plan. We would just wander. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> we could end up on the other side of town following a creek. We could, you know, explore the forest and if we came across private land with a gate or a fence... That was no barrier to us. <laughs> Especially because um, you had each other, I guess. You had a little bit of backup. I'd be quite afraid to yeah. go off by myself. Yeah. Oh, we'd occasionally hook up with some other kids in the neighbourhood and, and do things as a group. But, yeah, no, it was a, a childhood marked by, you know, you look after yourself, you fend for yourself, you go out and you just, you know, make sure you're home for tea. Yeah. And if you talk to West Coasters, 
they remember that childhood. They will say, we were told to get out of the house and just come back at tea time. And And it's quite common. Yes. And there's one gentleman who used to play around the iron blow. Oh, gosh. Oh, that sounds so frightening. (laughs) You can imagine a young child around the edges of the iron blow. and, And they did that and they did all kinds of things in the bush that today's parents would never let their children do. Oh, wow. Mm. I just, I can't imagine. And what was the, what was Iron Blow like then, I, I imagine? Oh, much the same as it is now. Oh, really? I think you could go around the little benches that were cut in mm. a bit easier, but mm. these days you wouldn't even think about it. And has the water always been that colour down there, that yeah. intense? Yeah. Oh. And the level doesn't change much either. Oh, really? Even with mm. all the rain? No, it's got a, an outflow, so it goes up and down a small amount, but always much the same. It's amazing. It's a really special spot. Mm. So after you were finished studying in Launceston, did you come back then to the West Coast? I was sent to the West Coast. Oh, <laughs> so it wasn't your choice? Um, when you graduated you could request where you wanted to go, but there was no guarantee you would get it. So I think I put in for the West Coast because I'd already decided then it was a good place. And when I got sent to Queenstown, I was quite, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Whereas my other fellow graduates, if they were told that, they would have burst into tears, I think. Do you think they had, I mean, you had some knowledge of the area and interest in the area. Do you think that you could say the same for your fellow students at the time? Oh, probably not, unless we're talking about fellow students in the geology class because we'd already been experienced the the West Coast as field work for geology. Mm. and that sort of made it a bit more um, certain that this is where I wanted to be. I've heard a lot of, um, when I first moved here, a couple of months in there was a talk at the hub at the library. Someone was presenting a talk on uh, the West Coast uh, geography and a lot of it, uh, and geology, a lot of it went over my head. Hmm. Uh, But one thing he said that really struck me was that the landscape here is so unusual that it's arguable that there isn't anything like it in the world in terms of the um, formations of rocks and the layering. Yeah, I think you would be right in saying that because there's a very experienced geologist who's recently put out a book on the geology of Tasmania and he says the same thing, that there's nowhere else like the geology here in the Queenstown area. So it is extraordinary and if you're interested in geology, there's no better place to be than the west coast of Tasmania. Mm. <laughs> so you've, you've come back to Queenstown and you're working as a teacher How long did you pursue that for? Well, 
it all fell apart, unfortunately. <laughs> I loved the kids. I loved the town. But I had some barriers thrown in my way. Um, I'd been a whitewater canoeist by for a few years by that stage and I was ha happy to go out canoeing here. I had a four-wheel drive and my lifestyle was very um, different to most other female teachers. And back then it was actually held against you. Um, there wasn't the same acceptance of lifestyle. So when the school found out that I was driving a four-wheel drive, kayaking on the rivers and sharing a house with a married couple and a, my boyfriend at the time, they made the decision that I had to go. I was far too um, out of the ordinary to be a teacher at their school. So they made sure I was um, moved out the following year and I was really, really upset about that. I didn't want to go. So, Especially with there being um, no reason, no genuine reason. No good reason. Yeah. I said to the um, head female teacher, I said, is there a problem with my teaching? And she said, no, we think you're a good teacher. And I said, is the problem just with my lifestyle? And she said, yes. So I thought, well, that's not good enough. No. And I wrote a letter to the education department telling oh. them so and the principal of the school was furious with me. Oh, no. Yeah. So I ended up being moved up to Burnie. I hated it but um, it was the catalyst for changing occupations. So left teaching and went into mining, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> Which that seems more fitting with the kind of lifestyle, the terrible, reckless lifestyle you were living. Yeah. But I do love little children and I do love rocks and mining, so I hadn't planned for my teaching career to finish quite so quickly. Mm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the following year I was back on the West Coast working for mining companies and that's where I really started to feel that this connection with the West Coast landscape because not only was I playing in it at mm. the weekend, I was also working in it during the week. And instead of it being a chore, it just, you know, strengthened my feelings for the environment here. And I had this urge to use that feeling in my artwork to show other people, hey, this is what it's like here. If you go away from the roads and into the bush and down the rivers, there's amazing things to see. What kind of um, what kind of work were you doing with the mining companies you were working for? What what would that look like? Initially, I was basically an assistant to the geologist, and that was a lot of physical work um, out in the bush and sometimes in the shed operating equipment. I had to learn how to um, drive an old Land Rover. I had to learn how to tow a trailer. I had to learn how to operate a chainsaw. <laughs> I was exposed to all kinds of physical skills 
that probably I wouldn't have otherwise. And after a year or so, I did get a promotion, if you want to call it that. But unfortunately, the work that I ended up doing was not as interesting. And mm. I looked around for another job in another mine setup. And that was when I um, saw this ad for a geological technician at the Renison tin mine. And it was quite interesting because in the ad it said, females need not be deterred from applying for this very interesting position. And I thought, ooh. And so I applied for it and had my interview and I got it. And once I'd got to know the chief geologist, he actually admitted that he'd put that in there especially to lure me to apply for it. Oh, wow. He wanted me for the job. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so that was good. And working um, at the Renison mine, the geological technician was still also an, an assistant to the geologists, but a slight step upwards. Um, some of the work was underground, some was in the office, some was in the big shed where they keep the drill core, but it was very varied and very interesting. And every time I went underground with the geologists, I would learn my way around. And it's a bit of a, uh, what would you call it, a maze down underground. There's a lot of um, twisting, winding roads that lead off in all directions. and Like a rabbit warren. Like a rabbit warren, yeah. So I, ha I had to learn my way around the mine. Oh, I had to, first of all, I had to get permission to work there. Then I had to get my underground driver's licence. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, I never knew that yeah. that was a thing. Yes, you can't just drive underground without going in a vehicle underground and, and passing the test, I suppose. Oh, wow. Because you're sharing the workspace with 35-tonne ore trucks oh. and you have to know how to, because the roads are all, all one lane. So if you're coming down and there's a large ore truck coming up, then you have to be able to reverse back to a little um, cuddy to get out of their way because they have the right of way and um, it's not a place for the faint-hearted. No, no, I don't imagine it is. Yeah, but no, that was a really good job and what the chief geologist did for me was allow me to work at a level that was higher than intended and he gave me more responsibility than, you know, perhaps I would have had under someone else. And then when one of the geologists uh, resigned and left and went to another mine in, on the mainland, instead of replacing him um, with another qualified geologist, because I didn't have a degree, what I did at the um, college was not equal to a degree. Mm. So... He then said, do you want his job? You can do it. If you want to do it, you can do it, but you're not going to get paid at, at oh. the same rate. You can mm. do the work, but you won't get paid the same rate. So I said, yep, I'll do it. So the last part of my time there was um, mostly underground um, geologist and that was quite a, an exciting and interesting position to have. So, Would you say that it would be unusual uh, for 
a woman to be in that position at the time. At the time, yes, but not now. No. Things have moved on, but certainly at the time I was um, one of a, a kind in that sense because there were no other females doing that kind of work and it was a bit of a brave new world, I suppose. And mm. if you weren't thick-skinned and determined, you could easily have been um, intimidated, if that's the word, and there were some men there that were intent on intimidating me. So it's, to me, and I've said this to you before, it really sounds like when we talk about your story that you have carved a place in the world for yourself, facing adversity, working in, I would say, at the time maybe a female-dominated industry, being teaching and uh, caretaking of children, to be pushed out of that space and to move into a space that is male-dominated <laughs> and not quite fit in there either. It's quite amazing that you have achieved the things that you have. Yeah, but, I mean, I think by the end of my time there I had found my place and was accepted. Um, it took a long time mm -hmm. but, yes, I think in the end I was accepted and it was um, sort of brought home to me once when one of the university qualified geologists, a young male, he um, had to go away and... I was given his portfolio to look after while he was away, yeah. which included going down to where they were drilling a hole underground to um, test for the ore body. And when I went down there, the first thing I did was have a look at the rocks on the walls of the drive and that gives you clues to where the ore body is, whether it's above you, below you and there was a little marker bed that was always above the ore body and this male geologist hadn't even noticed it. According to his maps, the ore body should be above. Mm. But he hadn't actually looked at the rocks in the wall of the drive. So when I went down, that was the first thing I did and I go, oh, there's the marker bed. So it's below us. And I said to the drillers, I said, stop what you're doing because they were about to drill up. And I said, stop what you're doing. It's not above you, it's below you. And they looked at me like, are you sure? And I said, yep, I'm sure. So they reconfigured their drilling machine and drilled down and hit the ore body. Oh, you must have felt so good. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a case of the, the fellow he wasn't using his practical skills of observation. Mm. He'd looked at his map and said, oh, well, it must be up there mm. without actually going down and looking at the rocks and hanging, saying, hey, hang on, the map's wrong. It's actually below us. So it was quite... quite and that that's seems to be a gift of yours is, is throwing yourself into the practical, going bush getting down into the mines, <laughs> you know, that's um, that's amazing. What, what does it feel like down there? What does, is it intimidating just to be down there? Not for me, no. In fact, I, lo I really loved it. It was um, a totally different environment to up above because once you'd gone down below, 
Yes, it was dark, but you had your lights of your vehicle, you had your light on your cap. It was sheltered from the wild weather. You know how oh, yes. our, the West Coast winters are, but if you go underground, the deeper you go, the warmer it gets. <laughs> and, of course, mostly there's no wind. A little so safe haven. A little safe haven, and you can look at, you know, what's in the walls as far as the rocks are concerned and try it's it's really good for thinking in 3D because if you're on the surface it's really hard to imagine what the rocks are doing below your feet but if you're down in the bowels of the earth it's all around you it's above you it's below you oh, it's wow. to the side and so you think right well I'm surrounded by the geology. I'm not just standing on top of it. Yeah. And you get to see it in different aspects and different angles and you can see the layers in the walls and project them and, you know, say, well, that would be up at the surface and then it would come down here and it gives you a bit more of a feel for um, what's underneath yes. the surface of the earth. I mean, most people just see the rocks when they walk over the top of them mm. but when you're underground it's a whole new aspect yes completely immersing yourself in the earth yeah but you've got to have confidence in the safety too the mine that I worked for the Renison mine at that time was a very safe mine and there weren't you know many fatalities and things to make you afraid um so I didn't ever feel at risk and um, overall it was a, a good time in my life, I suppose. Met lots of interesting people and it was quite remarkable the day that my college geology tutor brought some students from Launceston to Renison and I was given the task of giving them a tour underground. So Oh, that would have felt so good yes once upon a time I was the student and then all of a sudden I was taking my tutor on a tour of the mine and I think he was quite proud of me because many of his students don't go on to work in the mining industry mm. they do um, geology as part of their science studies and may never you know actually work in the the world of mining mm. But so, you followed it through. Yeah. And while we're talking about um, the rocks that I saw and how it was interesting to see that sort of aspect of them, in the shed where they keep the drill core, so when they're drilling down through the earth, a core sample comes out and that's uh, an example of what is underneath the ground and the core is put into trays and so you then have a, a sample of rock at depth. The hole might go to 100 metres or 600 or even so a kilometre. represents the layers? Yes, you can see a little sample as it's drilled Going down. all the way down. Yes. Amazing. And while I was um, describing the core, because that was one of the tasks I was doing something else. I was looking for artistic inspiration from the rocks and 
making note, oh, I really like the colours and the shapes in that one. And I was thinking, you know, how can I use this in my artwork at the same so the, time? the whole time that you were teaching and moving on to geology, were you still working on your practice? I was, but most of my artwork was fairly traditional. It was mainly depicting the rainforests and the rivers and the um, beaches on the West Coast. And these were the places that you would spend your playtime instead of your work time? Yes, usually, yeah. I mean, there were some occasions where, where I went for work was also inspiration for artwork, but, yeah, there were plenty of subject material around me, particularly when... Um, I was living in Strawn and I was close to the Gordon River. Mm. The Gordon River was very special and I would go up there as often as I could and um, sort of immerse myself in the rainforest environment. And you can you can do that with people, but I think it's best if you do it on your own. Mm. You know, if you if you're confident to be in a a place like that by yourself that's when you really get to know it. So most of my artwork was um, just trying to put on paper what the rainforest was like for me and it was fairly literal. I didn't mm. portray it in a abstracted or sort of expressionist way. I was fairly um, committed to putting it down as it was and the mm. reason for that was because... It was so beautiful the way it was. I didn't see any value in changing it. Yes. It was perfect just the way it was. And, um, yeah, so that's what I continued with for many years. When you first started, uh, we were speaking the other day about you were spent some time looking for the medium that really felt good to you. Mm. Um, And what year was it that you started working with pastels? Um, Believe it or not, I was actually in Brisbane. When I was working at the Renison Mine, I met my future husband, but he didn't want to stay in Tasmania. He wanted to go up to where it was warmer. So we ended up in Brisbane for a few years and that was where I um, discovered soft pastels and fell in love with them as a medium and it was um, pretty well exclusively pastels that I've been using right up until last year. Mm. And what what changed? What was the impetus to try something new, to start experimenting again? I will admit that it wasn't my idea but I ran with someone else's idea. (laughs) Um, two other artists here in Queenstown had decided it would be a good thing to look around for some earth materials to make their own paint and thought, wouldn't it be great if Queenstown had its own colour palette and the colours made from the local earth materials? And their plan was to try and source pigments from the earth and mix them with a medium and use them to paint with. And they even wanted to go as far as 
having the pigment analysed in a laboratory to wow. see exactly what was in it and they were hoping to then identify that pigment and say, well, this is um, Queenstown black and in it there's X amount percentage of carbon and X amount of something else. So they were trying to really make it quite technical mm. and precise and I thought that was interesting mm. but because I feel happier with a medium like pastel, which is a dry medium, I thought, well, they... Skip the middleman. Skip skip this um, <laughs> getting your pigments and grinding them all up because they were getting mortars and pestles out and grinding the pigment up and then mixing it with their thing and, yeah, so I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go my own way. I don't need to do that. I just need to look for... Um, the right kind of weathered rocks on the surface, pick them up and start using them straight away like they are. Mm. No interference, just as they are. And so that's what I've been doing. So when you're out fossicking for these raw materials, what are you looking for? Initially it's just the colours. I want to see how many different colours I can get. Um, I want a range of light colours, medium and dark, and I did find it harder to get the darks. Um, mm. My palette is mainly light to medium, um, so it's the colours that is most um, driving my searches, but it's also the consistency of the rocks. It can be anything from crumbly and powdery like dried clay right up to a rock that is really hard and when you hit it with a hammer it doesn't break or anything. So I've got to try and get ones that are um, firm enough to hold together like a stick of pastel and pastel sticks are pigment held together with an, a man-made um, ingredient and that keeps the pigment bound together and that's how you can pick up a stick of pastel and use it without it falling to pieces. So I'm after rocks that are firm enough to hold hold their own so you don't have to put a binder with it and when you use them they can be used just like a commercially bought pastel. They're all in different shapes and sizes, of course, but <laughs> the end result um, can easily pass for a pastel artwork. This seems to be the through line of you is your practicality, this, this desire to go bush, go underground, find the material that you want to use for your practice. And, and really the, there's something about pastels and, um, and when we were, you were showing me some of the rocks and clay that you had found and they're very tactile. It's, um, you're holding it and it's rubbing off onto you and mm. you're breathing it in and it's it's really incredible. Mm. I mean, pastels are available in a huge range of um, brands, if you like, and I've been through many of them and I will get a brand that I, or I used to, get a brand that I really loved and it was usually the ones that had this soft velvety texture 
and they were the ones that I usually stuck with. There were Australian-made ones that were a bit more gritty, which mm. I didn't like. So what you're saying is true. I tend to prefer the ones that are not gritty at all and just have that lovely velvety smoothness. And there is when I look at your work, there is a smoothness about the work as well. I think it comes across visually as it does in the experience of holding the materials. Mm. Um, what what um, you're exclusively using these raw materials that you have, that you fossic for now? Yeah, yeah. I decided if I'm going to do it, I may as well do it 100%. So I don't think, ooh, I just wouldn't mind a bit of <laughs> colour there that I don't have, so I'll just sneak to my pastels and nobody will know. But I'm very self-disciplined and mm. when I'm tempted to go to the pastel drawer, I'm saying to myself, no, don't. You know, you commit yourself to this wholeheartedly and I think it would be viewed as almost like cheating mm. if I sold a work as done with raw materials from the earth but don't mind about that bluey-purple <laughs> bit there because that doesn't belong. <laughs> and does this come back to when you uh, were would go out into the rainforest and come back and uh, draw exactly what you had seen, not wanting to exaggerate anything or change it, something about the truth of what it is being enough? It was enough for me, yes. And does that relate at all to exclusively wanting to use the raw materials and not not mixing with mm. this thing that it's not to because it's it's interesting you going out and um, finding these colors and then you're making these works of these rock formations and you and, and you're using that that material to depict what you're what you're making to, to where you've gotten your material mm. and that's um there's something really something really special about that, a mm. direct connection. Yeah, I mean, that's also the truth. It's the truth of portraying the land using little parts of the land. Mm. So that's extremely, you know, following the line of truth in, in material, truth in subject. So I guess if I were to consider cheating then it wouldn't be true would it <laughs> no it feels very much like um like an honoring it's very special when you were talking about the layers the of the drill and the mines and that the getting the layers of all of the rocks mm. when we were in your studio the other day you have a very similar setup with all of these trays across this large table uh, separating all of the colours. Um, it's it's incredible to see the, the past and the present melding together, mm. creating a new purpose. Yeah. I do separate them in the trays when I'm collecting and to have them out there ready for use, but I will admit to when I'm working on a piece, that all goes out the window. <laughs> I know enough now to know that I can't keep them separate when I'm working. So 
um, when a picture is in progress, I've got another tray, which is the working tray, and all the colours are all higgledy-piggledy in there, Mm. I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now getting to know my colours. Like if you've worked Mm. in pastels for years and you're working on a piece, you know exactly what one to pick up. Mm. You know, okay, that's a dark red in the shade. I know what colour I need and I'm now starting to get a feel for these rocks. I know what colour now I need to pick and it's in my head and I know whereabouts on the artwork each of the colours is going to have its purpose. Is it almost like going back to square one, like you're learning all over again? Yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, I did have, you know, the base knowledge of colours to go on, but, yes, you can't always get exactly the colour that you want, but I know which ones will do the job. Mm. And, um, yeah, so far it seems to be a really satisfying way of working. And at the end of the piece, I feel, I don't know, probably a greater achievement than previously with the pastels because using the rocks, as I said, it's, it's got this special truth to it and it just makes you feel more um, as if you're more genuinely portraying the land rather than using manufactured colours to portray the land because... Mm. If you've got colours that a laboratory is dreamed up by adding a little bit of this and a little bit of that, then in nature that may not even exist. Mm. And I found that with the rainforest pictures that I was doing for many years, I could not find enough greens to portray the rainforest greens. They just weren't the right greens and I struggled to to get a pastel that was true to the greens that I was seeing. Whereas at least with the rocks, they are true to what you're seeing on the Mm. landscape. And probably not something that you could do. I I spent a little bit of time looking into um, natural dyeing, um, extracting pigment from flowers and leaves and things like that, and it's not um, berries and you know, 99% of the time the colour that leaches from the green leaf is not, It's it, it'll be yellow. It's not, It's you can't get that colour from the raw material. Yeah. But that's completely different with the rocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll see where it goes. But um, the reaction I've had from people has been, all positive and um, I suppose if the, you know, proof of the pudding is in the selling, <laughs> I, I've actually um, had pre- pretty good success with selling my works that are done with, with the rocks and as long as people are aware that that's the medium that's been used and you can put a disclaimer if you want and say, look, I can't guarantee what this is going to look like in 100 years, but I don't think it's a deterrent to people. In fact, if anything, I think it intrigues them and Mm. they're willing to take that risk. There's, I think that there is a drive now for authenticity. 
And I think as a culture, we are not so interested in the longevity or that whenever we're buying something, I think the rhetoric was I'm buying something and it must last forever. Yeah. And I think now I, I think culturally we're becoming a little bit more emotional when we're buying things and forming a connection, mm. especially with especially with artwork. Yeah. And, and I don't think that so often... Uh, there's an expectation that um, a piece is static, that it will be that way. There's such a focus on ar- archival ink and archival paper and mm. it must last 100 years or more. Mm. But it's um, it's an object and it changes. Mm. And I'd really love to be around in 100 or 500 years' time to see what these artworks done with rocks do look like. Mm. I have a feeling they wouldn't have changed a lot, but if they do change, it may be changes that are a bad thing. No. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So what what kind of landscapes are you working on at the moment? I'm still finding inspiration um, of the the hills around Queenstown and I do enough regular walks to refresh my interest. Um, There's some stunning landscapes up in those hills and they're not all natural, that's for (laughs) sure. They're they're a bit of a, a leftover product of years and years of hard labour from the miners many, many explosions, many, you know, trips with the dump truck to the ore passes. So all this intense labour has gone on to create the mindscape, if you want to call it a mindscape, Mm. and some of it has been extracted and used to create copper and what they considered to be the waste was dumped over the side of the hill in a big scree slope of boulders and for the mining company that was considered waste but for an artist if you go and have a look at these waste dumps the boulders in them are just each one a work of art so I can look at the boulders and say well Maybe the mind considered it waste, but I'm looking at it and saying that is absolutely stunning Mm. and I can't wait to paint it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful, Chris. Mm. Before we finish up, what I would love is if you could describe your living situation and how long you have been living this way. Oh, okay. Um, well, when you don't have a lot of money, you sometimes have to rationalise what you're going to spend your money on. And for me, about eight years ago, I was faced with um, a fairly meagre income and nowhere to live. So I used what uh, money I had saved up 
in the bank and blew it all on <laughs> getting a unique caravan made for me to live in. And the idea was to have somewhere very special as a home. Uh, it didn't have to be big. It did have to suit my personality and my artistic bent, I suppose. And it also had to be uh, fairly self-sufficient, so it was not going to cost me uh, money to live in it. So that was how the Magic Gypsy Caravan was born, out of an idea which became a sketch, which became a model, which then became engineers' plans at a big factory up in Penguin. And, yes, it was really satisfying to see an idea in your head become a very special living space that the caravan is. And it is very special. Yeah. Has it always, um, have you always lived in it uh, on the property you're living on now? No, I've only been there for three and a half years mm -hmm. and I'm very lucky to be where I am because I'm close to where my art studio is. I'm close to the Queen River, which burbles its way down mm. past the caravan. I'm very close to walking up to the shops, to the museum, to the library, to my workplace. So it's a really wonderful situation and I'm very blessed, if the word is that, to be able to be there. And I don't know how much longer I'll be there, but when I was younger... I used to say, I don't know what the future holds for me, but, you know, it doesn't bother me. Whatever mm. will be, will be. And I wondered often if when I got older I would still feel the same. Because mm. some people when they get to their older years think, oh, I don't know what the future holds and it's a scary thing. Um, but I'm trying to keep that same, I don't know what the future holds but, hey, we'll just roll with it. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yes. Well, I don't, um, I don't think that you're a person who is scared very easily. <laughs> it's um, when I came to visit you, I, I had never I'd seen the caravan um, and I had been to your studio space, uh, but, I, you know, I had never been where you were and... Um, it was such it was such an incredible experience. It was so peaceful to see all of the rabbits that were <laughs> so comfortable with humans and the birds, the kurawongs. Yeah. Yes. They were so at ease with you. There's um there is something about you and the caravan that is so easeful. Oh, that's very nice to hear that you would say that. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to promote? I know that it's been a funny sort of year, um, but in terms of are you planning on showing any work soon or uh, anything to do with your workplace, with the Paragon that you'd like to promote? Um, 
And and where can people find you? Can they find you online or contact you that way? You're talking to the lady who has a little Telstra <laughs> flip phone. <laughs> yes. No, you can't find me online um, unless you Googled the Magic Gypsy Caravan and then you will find me. Um, I've got a little bit of a presence online with the caravan, but as an artist, no. And I did have one, someone say to me, oh, I tried to find you online, but there was no listing for Chris Wilson artist. <laughs> So, no, it doesn't bother me. Well, um, people have to come to Queenstown to find you. Maybe they will, yeah. yeah. So, no, I'm, I'm happy with my work at the Paragon. I'm, I'm having a break from tour guiding and getting stuck into some cleaning and painting and general getting the theatre, you know, mm. ready for reopening whenever that happens to be. And I'm lucky to be able to um, do a bit of artwork while I'm there. Yes, the great uh, mural. The great mural. Yes. And (laughs) me who said I would never do a mural. Oh, really? No, I couldn't ever see myself doing murals. What, What changed your mind? Well, because my employers said it would be great to have a mural on the door and I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. And so I did a sketch first and they said, yeah, we love it. So I went ahead and did it and it wasn't quite so terrifying as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the size, I've always worked at a fairly small size and working on a larger scale I found a bit daunting, Mm. but it was all right. And you're um, physically, your work, your work, you have some work at uh, Q West is that right? There's only one big piece left in there. And oh, you better get working. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm trying to get another piece done. Um, but I just yeah, I just spend most of the working week at the Paragon and mm. then on a weekend I've got one half day at the museum volunteering there. And then Saturday I try and go bush (laughs) (laughs) and I've got this very special place at the moment that um, I've been twice and I want to go back again because it's a place that I'd seen for years from a distance and it looked unattainable it was looked like it was somewhere you would never get to easily and in the years between 2008 and 2016 I had a health condition that meant I couldn't walk very well and during those years I often looked up at that forest and thought I wish I could go there. Mm. Anyway I'm fine now physically so I decided a few weeks ago now's the time to go. You're going to do it. I did it. Interestingly a couple of months ago I was in hospital bit of a scare and I woke up in the ICU and my eyes wouldn't open but I was able to um, just relax and think of things because it was a very peaceful environment and while I was lying there I just kept seeing this forest in my mind. I hadn't been to it but I knew exactly what it was going to look like. Really? 
and I kept that image and I thought when I do go to that forest, I have a feeling it's going to be just like I imagined and it was. Oh, Chris. It was very special. So I'm going to go back again, yeah. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Is it difficult to access? Is it? Um, with my, you know, health as it is now, it was easy. In oh. fact, it was a lot easier than I thought. And um, what I'd like to do is maybe not do a pastel painting because it's going to be full of intense greens mm. and the rocks just wouldn't do it justice. So rather than a pastel painting, I'm actually thinking of doing a photograph and I'm going to set the tripod up and I'm going to be in the forest probably up against one of the trees and try and recapture that feeling that was in my brain when I woke up in the ICU mm. because it was every detail was just there and I thought I can, you know. Yeah. I can just know that that is, is there, out there in the real world. Mm. And getting back to your previous thing, what I would like to say in general is that you should never lose your sense of wonder and belief that there are special things or special places and that you can do them or go there if you really put your mind to it. Mm. And in troubled times like the COVID crisis, I have felt that every time I go into the forest, I'm instantly healed of any stress and it just makes you feel really good. So if you can get out into nature, do mm. it. It sounds like you've been cultivating that relationship and connection with the physical world, with the natural world, you know, your whole life. Mm. And I I won't say that I would be comfortable being in the bush on my own at night. <laughs> well, no one knows what's I'm not out a, there. I'm not a superhuman. I would be a bit nervous at night, but during the day I feel very comfortable being in the bush by myself. I'm not really afraid of anything. Mm. Oh. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Chris. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. No worries. This was Local. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is produced by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Gortz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. Every detail was just there. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.